the overarching cultural deficiencies really have to be taken into context and put in place here when viewing the internal investigation missteps. The failures to disclose, in my view, partially reflect failures of various actors, including outside counsel, but also senior leadership. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkoff. Well, hello, this is Michael Volkoff. This is our episode on the Ericsson FCPA Deferred Prosecution Agreement Breach Settlement. More than a mouthful. What an interesting case. This is really very interesting case just because it highlights a lot of important issues with regard to the conduct of internal investigations, corporate culture. And if you unfortunately get into one of these situations and dealing with the Justice Department, the importance of your representations and your outside counsel's interactions with DOJ prosecutors. So let's start first with some basics. Ericsson the telecom company, which is based in Sweden, settled its breach of the 2019 Deferred Prosecution Agreement and agreed to enter a guilty plea to the original charges in the DPA and pay a $206 million penalty. Just to refresh everybody's recollection, in 2019, Ericsson entered into a three-year DPA, paid a little bit more than $1 billion to DOJ and the SEC for FCPA violations in a number of countries. And in 2021, during the DPA, while it had an independent compliance monitor, DOJ notified Ericsson that it had breached the DPA by violating the cooperation and disclosure provisions stemming primarily from allegations that Ericsson had failed to disclose its bribery payments or potential bribery payments to ISIS to facilitate transportation of telecom equipment in Iraq. Now, it turns out there was more than just that involved. But as a consequence of their failures, Ericsson now has to enter a guilty plea to the two-count information that was originally filed as part of the DPA, which charges Ericsson with conspiracy to commit anti-bribery violations and a second count with a conspiracy to violate the books and records and internal controls provisions of the FCPA. Basically, the original DPA dealt with from 2000 to 2016, Ericsson used third-party agents and consultants to pay bribes to government officials in a number of countries to manage sort of off-the-books slush funds as well. And this was in Dribati, China, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Kuwait. And these agents were employed through sham contracts and paid pursuant to false invoices. All of that was part of the original settlement. Ericsson agreed to a three-year corporate monitorship, and an Ericsson subsidiary in Egypt pled guilty to a criminal conspiracy charge as well. 
Subsequently, Erickson breached the 2019 DPA by failing to truthfully disclose all factual information related to the Jubati scheme, the China scheme, and other violations, potential violations in Iraq. And specifically, they violated paragraphs five and six of the DPA, which we'll talk about in a minute. And as a consequence, Erickson's prior partial credit for cooperation under the original 2019 DPA was eliminated. Interestingly, DOJ's investigation of Erickson's conduct in Iraq and possible payment of bribes to ISIS is continuing. If confirmed, this conduct may require Erickson to subject itself to additional penalties. So far, Erickson has claimed that its investigation has found violation of compliance rules and controls, but no evidence that specific bribery payments were made to ISIS or other terrorist organizations. So that's the real big issue that's still out there and will eventually be resolved. Now, DOJ noted that Erickson since 2019 has significantly enhanced its compliance program and internal accounting controls through structural and leadership changes, including it hired a new chief legal officer and a new head of corporate and government investigations. I just heard recently that the chief compliance officer resigned and they're going to be looking for a new chief compliance officer. And they also, Erickson, created a multidisciplinary business risk committee comprised of group-level senior executives who oversee and apply heightened scrutiny to group material risks, so to ensure that Erickson maintains an effective ethics and compliance program. Erickson also agreed to continue to enhance its program and test these enhancements for effectiveness. And under the plea agreement, which will be entered formally on March 20th, that's scheduled for a court hearing that day, Erickson will enter a guilty plea to the original two-count and information that I described above, and they will be required to serve a term of probation, which can be revoked for even further reasons or if there are more violations found. And they have agreed to extend the corporate monitorship for one year. Finally, DOJ's calculation of the criminal penalty was for just over $727 million, reflecting the midpoint of the applicable guideline range. But DOJ credited the 520 originally paid by Erickson under its 2019 DPA, resulting in the payment of additional penalty of just over $206 million. And consistent with the new corporate enforcement policy, 30 days prior to expiration of this agreement, Erickson will be required to submit compliance certifications from its CEO and CCO, attesting to the implementation of its compliance obligations. So let's go through the conduct this is pretty ugly, but it's also very different than our normal, quote-unquote, normal FCPA violation case. This has to do with failures to disclose. And the breach of its original DPA reads like an internal investigation horror show. This is every investigator's nightmare scenario where there's a failure to discover evidence that was available to inform and understand the full scope of the corporate misconduct. For Erickson, these failures have undermined the integrity of its corporate commitment to compliance and ethical culture, damaged even further its reputation, and threatened its relationship with the Justice Department and overall government regulators. So paragraph five of the original DPA provided in substance that Erickson has to cooperate fully and shall truthfully disclose all factual information, including any evidence or allegations in internal or external investigations about which Erickson has knowledge. 
Paragraph 6 of the original DPA provided in substance that Erickson shall promptly report any evidence or allegation to the Justice Department in the event that it learns of any evidence or allegation of conduct that may violate the FCPA anti-bribery or accounting provisions. DOJ determined that Erickson violated both of these provisions, and in October 2021, they sent a letter and informed Erickson that it was in breach of the original 2019 DPA. And DOJ then cited two relevant violations. Erickson's failure to truthfully disclose all factual information and evidence regarding the Jubati scheme, the China scheme, and other potential violations of the FCPA, and Erickson's failure to promptly report and disclose evidence and allegations of conduct related to its historical business activities in Iraq that may constitute a violation of the FCPA. So let's start first with the Jubati and China investigations, and then we'll turn to Iraq. Erickson, in its original statement of facts included in the 2019 DPA, the Jubati bribery scheme stated that between 2010 and 2014, Erickson, through its employees and agents, paid approximately 2.1 million in bribes to three foreign officials in Jubati to win a contract valued at over 20 million euros. Now, what Erickson failed to disclose in its original settlement with DOJ, and they didn't disclose this until May 2021, that there was a significant May 2011 email, which was in Italian, between two of the principal Erickson executives who orchestrated the Jubati bribery scheme. In the May 2011 email, employee one, the head of the customer unit in Northeast Africa, informed employee three, these were the names that were in the original statement of facts or the anonymized references, a high-level executive this was employee three, he informed three that Erickson had just won the contract and had been assisted in that effort by its agent, quote, who is a foreign official in person. And employee three replied, okay, understood. This email, specific email message, was responsive to search terms agreed upon between DOJ and Erickson, had the search included terms in Italian. In addition, the May 2111 email was part of a broader email chain about the contract. And prior to the DPA, Erickson produced branches of the same email chain, but failed to produce this piece of evidence, which confirmed that its executives had knowingly paid a foreign official to obtain the telecommunications contract. The disclosure failure prevented DOJ from bringing criminal charges against certain individuals. Now let's turn to China. In its original statement of facts included in the 2019 DPA, the China bribery scheme indicated that between 2000 and 2016, Erickson through certain employees and agents, and they numbered various employees, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, they caused tens of millions of dollars to be paid for various agents, consultants, and service providers in China, a portion of which was used to provide leisure, travel, and entertainment to foreign government officials associated with the specific state-owned telecommunications company. Now, Ericsson there failed to disclose a significant email that an Ericsson manager for the Northeast Asia market, which included China, sent a senior officer to Ericsson in February of 2018. In this email, the Ericsson manager raised several allegations against former senior executives of Ericsson and its Asia subsidiary including employees five, six, and eight, 
who played central roles in the China criminal scheme. Specifically, the email alleged that the China senior executives engaged in improper relationships with third-party agents and had approved of very large payments from Ericsson agents without any work being performed by the agents. In the February 2018 email, the Ericsson manager also alleged a, quote, conspiracy by certain of the top management in the company to withhold information, close quote, and noted that the, quote, conspiracy may also be criminal if it was to withhold information from the board or the U.S. authorities, close quote. After receipt of that email in the 2018 email, senior leadership of Ericsson recognized the significance because they were then in the midst of an ongoing U.S. investigation prior to the resolution, and they immediately asked outside counsel, and this was prior outside counsel, to investigate the allegations. For more than three years, however, Erickson failed to produce this email or disclose all of the facts gathered during the independent investigation into this email. And Erickson did not disclose the email until April of 2021, and the late disclosure harmed the U.S.'s ongoing criminal investigation. So that's China. Now we have two other failures. One is, and this is another internal investigation nightmare, when you're doing these internal investigations, these are the kinds of issues that you worry about. And they all came together in the Erickson case. So a failure to produce responsive documents for many years, including prior to and during DOJ's investigation, Erickson maintained hard copy records of relevant documents, including agreements with third parties, invoices, and due diligence files, and they kept them in safes and locked filing cabinets in secured storage areas in basements of various buildings at its headquarters in Sweden. In addition, Erickson personnel maintained two USB drives that contained records regarding third-party payments and agreements. Erickson failed to produce these materials, even though some employees knew of their existence since as early as 2015. And certain Erickson employees and now former executives, as well as prior outside counsel, were aware of these records and understood they were required to produce them to DOJ, but they didn't. And finally, let's talk about Iraq. Two weeks prior to entering into the 2019 DPA and at the direction of senior corporate leadership, Erickson's prior outside counsel disclosed general information concerning a new internal investigation concerning Erickson's operations in Iraq. Prior outside counsel's disclosure omitted key details related to Erickson's investigative findings. Erickson finalized the Iraq investigation report on December 11, 2019, five days after entry of the DPA. Erickson's outside counsel did not update DOJ on the findings and conclusions of its investigation, despite being required to do so by the terms of the DPA. More than two years later, in February 2022, DOJ and Erickson received requests for information from an investigative journalist consortium concerning Erickson's operations in Iraq. Erickson then reviewed its original disclosure by prior outside counsel in 2019. With the assistance of new outside counsel, Erickson provided an updated disclosure in 2022, which included information and evidence of possible FCPA violations and other serious misconduct that had not been previously provided to DOJ. The original Iraq disclosure, which had been provided through a telephone call conducted by prior outside counsel, 
omitted material facts and information, as well as evidence of possible misconduct known to Erickson and prior outside counsel. The full details of the Iraq investigation, again, were not disclosed to DOJ until after Erickson became aware of the news report in 2022. So what are our lessons learned from this sort of massive failure and nightmare scenario with regard to disclosures? And this is not your typical FCPA enforcement action, lessons learned type of uh, scenario. Instead, Erickson's breach really presents a laundry list of internal investigation errors. And as a practitioner in this area myself, this is a nightmare scenario. It is a cautionary tale for all investigators, whether conducted by internal staff or outside counsel. Before getting into the nitty-gritty of the internal investigation deficiencies, though, let me start with this one observation. These failures occurred in an environment that lacked fundamental culture improvements. Erickson's original violations occurred over a 16-year period and were pervasive and systemic. Its culture was rotten, and it promoted bribery as a means to an important end, that is, just making money. The overarching cultural deficiencies really have to be taken into context and put in place here when viewing the internal investigation missteps. The failures to disclose, in my view, partially reflect failures of various actors, including outside counsel, but also senior leadership responsible for oversight and direction of outside counsel. They appear to have failed to strictly scrutinize the actions and behaviors and work of outside counsel. I'm not trying to excuse the errors that were made by outside counsel, but to recognize that Erickson's weak culture contributed to these errors. So some important lessons learned beyond culture, because everything always usually boils down to culture, but the Justice Department interactions and representations here were fundamentally flawed. And it's this case stands as a testament to the importance of accurate, complete, and robust representations made by outside counsel and the company to the Department of Justice. Senior management and outside counsel have to establish an effective working relationship with transparency, coordination, and full disclosures. Building on that foundation, outside counsel has to make sure that statements made, representations made to DOJ are carefully crafted and reflect an appropriate balance between disclosure and ongoing issues to investigate prior to disclosure. The email omissions here relating, let's start with the Jubati bribery scheme, it is even more disturbing to me that several versions of the email chain were produced except for one important email that was in Italian. It is unclear to me if Erickson failed to discover the document because it was in Italian. The search terms, if you're doing search terms, they have to be translated to obviously go through foreign language communications, given Erickson's use of Italian and probably other languages. The omitted email message was critical, should have been captured by the search of relevant custodian data for key executives. The missed email was between two critical custodians, the head of the customer unit in Northeast Africa and a high-level executive. The failure to capture all of that, given their specific roles, and the fact that the message was in Italian is just inexplicable. I mean, you have to be honest here. Mistakes can occur, and nobody's perfect. I get that. 
and I'm not trying to excuse the failures, but there should have been some kind of secondary check or backup procedure to ensure that a key responsive document was not missed. The other miscues that we saw here also rest squarely with prior outside counsel. First, the February 2018 email alleged that a broad conspiracy among top officials in China, senior executives, to cover up a conspiracy in China's use of third-party agents and payment of large amounts of money in exchange for little to no services. So when received, Ericsson top management and outside counsel followed up on this important email. But for some unexplained reason, however, neither Ericsson nor outside counsel informed DOJ of this email. There's no reason for such a failure. Apparently, outside counsel investigated this allegation but failed to disclose the email or the results of the investigation to DOJ. And that's a significant miscue. Outside counsel miscues stemming from the Iraq investigation are even more disturbing. In light of the potential incendiary nature of the allegations linking Erickson's bribery activities to potential terrorist payments, the investigation and the issue should have been a key priority, especially given the reputational risks. While it's clear that outside counsel committed serious errors, the failures underscore the importance again of senior executive and management engagement in the overall internal investigation and interactions with DOJ. Senior executives in the end have to manage the overall process and engage with outside counsel at each and every step, along with the board for obvious reasons, and it's an important check on every internal investigation. Finally, the failure to produce certain documents that were kept in hard copy or on USB storage devices reflects again the absence of basic understanding of what documents, where the document population may be, and again underscores the need for a document retention policy because if that was ever put in place, there would be an audit of where all the documents and data may be. Companies that implement document retention programs or policies usually will catalog all of its documents, including historical hard copies. And so in many cases, companies may have hard copy documents stored in warehouses or basements or other areas and may then begin to destroy certain documents consistent with their document retention policy. Well, that's more than a mouthful on the Erickson case. What an interesting case, fascinating case. I urge everybody to take a look at it. Right now, the court documents were not available on the DOJ website, and you have to go to the court in the Southern District of New York to get the uh, documents, but I presume they'll be made available soon. And then I would urge everybody to read them. What a horror show it was. Erickson did well to get out of this with only a $200 million payment, but obviously they're subject to additional scrutiny, and we still have some internal investigation activity that's continuing based upon Iraq. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Thank you all. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.